Let me ask you to turn to Malachi chapter four and uh, bring greetings from our work here in North Carolina. It's good to see some of you at the conference. I didn't get to speak with a lot of people. I was in my chair trying to think of what needed to be said next a lot of times in between meetings, but uh, it was very good to be there. I felt like the Lord's smile was upon us in that time. I'll just read uh, this very brief chapter, Malachi 4, and you'll recognize in the middle of it some words that Wesley pulled from, and that, in my opinion, one of the best of the Christmas carols. It's really more of a hymn, I guess, than a carol. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. I just pause that a fitting statement to be the last words of the Old Testament to call them back to the first words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Well, if I could, I'll just lead us briefly in a word of prayer before we consider this. Lord, we're grateful today that we pray to the same God that created the heavens and the earth, and the same God who has given such promises as these is his coming to restore all things. And Lord, we live in this vapor of time in between and we are constantly in need of grace. And we're thankful for every grace that you bestow. Lord, there have been many prayers. We pray there will be many more for reviving grace to descend upon your church. Lord, we are not unmindful to thank you for sustaining grace. In the days of the smallest of remnants that you have always preserved your people and not left yourself without witness. Help us to be such a witness and such a people in our day. And we ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. What we've read, as I said, is really the last words of the Old Testament scriptures. It's possible scholars can wrestle it out with whether perhaps Nehemiah may have been written later, uh, those historical events, the closing record of the Old Testament, but whatever that case may be on the chronology of the two books being written, these are certainly the last prophetic words to God's people in the Old Testament, and they're words that preceded a season of waiting, and sometimes I think waiting is almost the hardest thing for God's people to do. I preached a sermon very early in my ministry from Acts chapter 1, where the Lord tells the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem. 
I don't remember the rest of the sermon, but I know the first point of the sermon was the activity of waiting. Because sometimes uh, we're eager to be doing something and we don't think that waiting or praying and seeking God to do something, God to give us direction, we somehow can drift into thinking that's not doing something. Uh, and you look at that even in Paul, you look in Acts where he was journeying in the second journey and there, there are three times the spirit kept them from going into certain places. But yet you read later, some of those places, the churches of Asia, Ephesus, I mean, that became the center uh, of really the spreading of the gospel into Europe and, and, and through the early church. I mean, Ephesus is where John was in the 90s. Uh, so it wasn't that God wasn't going to do something there. It just wasn't time for Paul to go there yet. And so I think sometimes, like I said, it's, it's hard for us to wait and just tarry for the Lord to move, for the Lord to give direction. And I want to just share today something that I've approached from different angles over the last several years, because it really smote me the first time I, I really thought on it. What happened in those four centuries in between these words of Malachi, words where he speaks of the ultimate day of the Lord, words where he speaks of John the Baptist coming to be the harbinger and the forerunner of the Messiah. These people wrestled, and, and we see when we read Ezra and Nehemiah that the remnant that returned knew the hand of God, and yet how quickly they, they fell into different sins. But I think of those centuries of waiting, and when the Messiah finally did come, what was Israel like? They, they had come to the point they didn't recognize him. They'd waited so long, and they'd gotten busy in the things that they felt like needed to happen to fill in this void, this gap, that certainly couldn't have been God's will, that, that long wait. And so they, they all began pursuing what you might even look at as a redefinition of the promise, a redefinition of the covenant. And if you think of the groups that rose up during that period, Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, I mean, this was a season of Gentile domination still, even though the remnant had returned, the temple had been rebuilt. The Greeks and the Romans were still to come. And so during that time, the Sadducees, they come to the mindset, look, if we're going to get along with these people, if the church is going to continue to exist, we, we need to work with them. We, we need to make some compromises here and there. And so they began to compromise in their lifestyle. They compromised in their doctrine. And we see by the time Christ came, they didn't recognize Christ. They denied the resurrection. They were totally secularized. They were just looking for something political. And then you got the Pharisees. And they see what the Sadducees are doing. So we cannot go there. Brethren, this is, this is what took us to Babylon in the first place. We've got to sure up the ranks. We've got to be overzealous with regard to personal holiness. We've got to be overzealous when it comes to adding to the Old Testament word. 
And then you've got the zealots. And they said, well, you know, the Pharisees have got the right idea, but they're not taking it far enough. It's not just this personal stuff and this rigid ecclesiastical grip on the people that we need. We need to start throwing some bombs uh, at the Romans and, and take swords and, and weapons in our hands and get them out of here. We got to take control. And it's easy for us to look back and we read the New Testament, we read the Gospels and the book of Acts, and we see the hard hearts and we see the error, we see the worldliness, we see the legalism, and, and we don't think we can go there. But I wonder, seriously, if you look even today, as we are in a waiting time for the second advent, if all the elements, the little kernel of thought that started Sadduceeism and Phariseeism and the Zealots, if the little kernel of thought underneath all of those movements isn't present in the evangelical church even today, you know, if we're going to impact our generation, we got we to gotta stop looking weird. We, we got we to gotta blend in. No, no, no. If we're going to impact our generation, we need to go above and beyond in looking weird and different. Uh, and we need, to, we need to add a little bit to uh, where the church has been. And then we might have some that say, well, our real answer is political activism. We've got to, we got to get in and, and be active in the political realm if we're going to save our country. Well, saving our country may not be God's purpose and plan. I wonder how many Christians are more ready to give up on the church, as it were, if they can get America back. And all of those pieces, I say, and I'm talking to us, a little group like this, we need to guard our hearts that the little seed that became all these little groups doesn't take root in us. But there was another group. There were those like Simeon, and Anna, and Elizabeth, and Zacharias, and Mary, and Joseph, and the disciples that were eager to listen to John, even though he preached a message of repentance that was difficult. They were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were seeking truth, and they were willing to stay in the orbit of truth and not follow a tangent out into some error, even though the original thought might have some element of truth in it. And again, I, I think in the Sadducees, it's a little kernel of truth. We have to live in this world and interact with the ungodly. But we don't give up our testimony in the process. There's a little kernel of truth in the Pharisees. We need to be separate from the world. Our lifestyles must be different. And then the zealots, well, I don't think we should just not care and not be engaged. But the point is, is that our engagement's a gospel engagement always. And so the example in that season of waiting is Simeon and Anna waiting for the consolation of Israel, seeking spiritual reality and not some substitute product like well, Israel was looking for when Jesus came. They weren't ready for a humble Messiah. 
They'd given up on that gospel and they were looking for something different. But it's that gospel that's the only answer for any age. And that includes ours.